I don't think I was really aware that perimenopause was a thing and that it lasted so long. I thought you just kind of entered menopause and now you no longer have a period and done deal. You, now you need hormones to fix things. But I didn't know that the time in between normal youth <laughs> and menopause, there's a special time for that. And it is horrible. It's horrible. UC Health presents The Every Podcast. We're taking our wellness event, Every, created with the goal of providing inspiration for every woman and bringing that conversation to you via podcast. We'll talk with special guests and top experts and bring that information directly to your ears. Things like insomnia, stress, parenting, perimenopause. What is that? Relationships, sex, life changes, you name it. We are talking about it here on Every. I'm your host, Gloria Neal, former anchor, former reporter, current public servant, director of public affairs for the mayor in Denver, and here to help you live your best life physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So, we women experience hormonal changes multiple times in our lives between puberty, menopause, you name it, it is a roller coaster ride. Now, add in trying to conceive, then getting pregnant, all the way to the postpartum years. Yeah, honey, there's a lot to talk about, let me just tell you. So, Shelly's story, you heard from her, and she's really about being unprepared for perimenopause. And unfortunately, it's not that unusual. Many women are unaware of the changes that can happen leading up to menopause. So our guest today, Dr. Laura Borgelt. She is the Associate Vice Chancellor of Strategic Initiatives for the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. She is a wealth of information, humor, knowledge, especially when it comes to hormones and women's reproductive health. So with that, hey, Laura. Hello there. Great to be here. <laughs> it's good to have you here. Hormones fluctuate a lot throughout our lives, but what are some of the key life events that can trigger our hormones to change? That's a great question. I think what I really think about is the lifespan. For women, it starts with puberty. We have phases in our life with pregnancy and, as you mentioned, postpartum phases. Then we go into, in our 40s, typically, perimenopause, menopause, about age 51 on average, mm -hmm. and then after that is postmenopause. But all of those phases represent times when hormones can change and shift, increase, decrease. And so there's a lot that happens through the decades of our lives. That's right. There is. And so with all of that, because it really does introduce kind of like this confused period, not in our brains, but we'll talk to a girlfriend and they'll say, you know what, you're older than me. Have you experienced, whether it's a hot flash or I can't sleep at night or something feels funny or vaginal dryness? I mean, you talk about it. Well, no, I haven't experienced that. But have you experienced ankle swelling, headaches? You look at your husband and you think, now there's a good place for a cartoon murder. You know, you think about, <laughs> you think about all those things, but at the same time, what do we say when we feel like we're going crazy? How do we handle that? What I think about is that we as women have many shared experiences, but they're not the same experiences. 
And I think when I'm saying that is we will both go through menopause, mm-hmm. have the menopausal, perimenopause as a shared experience, but how we experience it individually mm-hmm. will be very individual. So you may have different symptoms that are more bothersome to you than I would. And that's kind of the beauty of creating a personal space for us to take care of ourselves, but to really help and support each other as well. And how long does that last? Again, does that fall into that category? We'll experience it, but we could very well experience it differently. Yes. So I mentioned earlier, the average age of menopause is 51. Perimenopause can start eight to 10 years prior to that. So for many women, they could experience it in their late 30s, early 40s. Some women may start their perimenopausal symptoms in their mid to late 40s. So it really depends upon the woman and the timing. There are a lot of reasons that timing may shift or be different, but it will be different for each woman. Absolutely. So get this, Dr. Laura, perimenopause, All of that, who is Perry? When does that happen for us? And what are some of the signs or symptoms? I love that question. And Perry is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So Perry is a term that we use to describe the time before menopause. I think of the symptoms in buckets because I think that helps us sort out all the confusion and the many different things that are happening in our bodies at this time. Right. The first thing women might notice is a change in their menstrual cycles, where periods become longer or heavier, or there may be more time in between periods. And that's oftentimes one of the first signals. Right. Other things that can happen can be psychological symptoms. So we may feel more moody with mood swings, depressed, anxious. And some of that is fed by other symptoms like lack of sleep because of hot flashes. That particular area where you're having problems sleeping, everything feeds into everything else. One thing begat another begat another. Mm -hmm. So for me, I will just tell you, the periods became irregular. And I'm like, hey, I know I'm not late. What is going on with that? And it is your body's way of what, kind of winding it down a little bit? Yes, a little bit. It's transitioning from our reproductive life to a non-reproductive life. And it's doing that by sending signals to our body about changing the hormones in our bodies. And so our estrogen levels, our progesterone levels, even our testosterone can change over that time period. Wow. And so there's a lot going on that our body's figuring out. And then we're trying to respond to that right. <laughs> in a way that we stay sane and kind <laughs> to people. <laughs> <laughs> that is right. Emphasis on the kind. But I think it's important to really talk about How do we combat these symptoms? It's so hard when hormones start changing for good. And you know, and that's one of the reasons why we women get together and talk about, okay, what are you using? How do we work on those symptoms so we can be normal? I completely agree. (laughs) I think self-care is really important. So what I would recommend for someone like you, based on what you've just described, is let's talk about your sleep a little bit, because that can often be the root of causes of other things that we feel like sadness, fatigue, frustration. There are things that we can do with exercise, with diet, with even essential oils. You mentioned the ginkgo, but I think about putting lavender oil on a pillow at night. Mm. Uh, Those types of things can be really helpful for us and um, nurture ourselves Mm. so we can understand, be better stewards to our own health. That's right. Not just menopause, though, Laura. You think about all the other challenges with symptoms. Women can struggle with those hormonal changes when they're trying to conceive 
and even after pregnancy. So both of which I know we're going to talk about more later. But in general, are there any other natural remedies? You talked about the lavender oil. I even thought about voodoo. You know, (laughs) (laughs) anything. What about that exercise that can help? That, for me, is a saving grace. Yes. And I think exercise has a lot of benefits in this space. It Not only, we mentioned the sleep and the routine, you know, that can really help with that. But exercise is also really great for our mental health, our emotional health. And it can mean simple walks outside, yeah. or it can mean a really tough workout at the gym. But there's a lot of room for us to exercise, help our bodies feel good. And I say, listen to your body. Right. What feels good for you to exercise may or may not feel as good to me. I love to swim. I'm going to go for a swim every moment I can. For others, it might be yoga or running. And so it's really nurturing and helping yourself to understand. There's not a definite prescription But if you can understand yourself and understand what feels good to you, you're going to be much better off. What is it about exercise that takes our bodies there? Because you do feel better. From a scientific level, we can generate neurotransmitters in our system, the feel-good hormones, so to speak. And so when we have things like serotonin and dopamine rewarding our system, it creates an elevation of our spirit for a while. Now, those levels will eventually drop, as we know. But when we do that on a routine basis, it really helps us to get into the flow and understand that life is going to have these up and downs, but we can have a lot to do with it. That's absolutely right. Now, unfortunately, some of these approaches and treatments are not enough. At what point should women seek medical help to bring those hormones back into balance? Yes, this is a really important question. Again, like I mentioned earlier, it'll vary for each woman. For me, as a marker of when is it so bothersome? And you have tried, given it a good college try. Correct. <laughs> That's right. In the spaces of exercise and diet and sleep and even these essential oils and other of types that. of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we can honestly say I've given it everything I can, it still is intolerable. I'm having eight to 10 hot flashes a day and I'm not sleeping because of my night sweats. We have hormone therapies that can be helpful. You may not even want to wait that long. Right. If symptoms are bothersome enough, it's worth a discussion with your provider to find out what would be best for you. But we have treatments that can be very, very effective. Hormones can be really effective first-line therapy. We have a category of antidepressants that also help things like hot flashes. So it can be kind of a double score oh, wow. in terms of helping some mood symptoms that people might be having, but also help reduce hot flashes. And so that becomes a great second line option for women who are unable to take hormones or don't feel comfortable taking hormones. That is awesome news. Mm-hmm. When we look around and the whole house and everyone is sleeping but you, mm-hmm. <laughs> it can really have some tough side effects on your mental and physical ability. We heard about some of those challenges in our very first episode on sleep. Why is sleep so important, especially during this time? It's important for a lot of reasons, but I think of it as the most restorative aspect of our health. And because it can be so restorative, it helps our body every day come into a reset and helps us bring us into the next one. And I used to be one of those that would say, oh, I can get by on four to five hours of sleep and I'm totally fine. Well, (laughs) that eventually comes to an end. 
I think when we look at six, seven, eight, nine hours, we do much better, but it's because we become restored and mm-hmm. we can then tackle the next day. So in essence, when we sleep, our bodies go to work. Yes. Gives us a chance to kind of let the insides work themselves out. Yeah, because I'm sure during the day we file things in the wrong place. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All the time, our body's like, okay, we're going to be doing some refiling tonight because yeah. this <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> and so on that note, we are going to take just a little break. And when we come back, let's talk about our younger years, going all the way back and shining a light on some of the things that may help when you're trying to get pregnant during pregnancy and even postpartum. That is up next. Glow and Dr. Laura, back in a moment. So I got pregnant and it was all going good. And then around 20 weeks, they're like, you still have fibroids and they're not getting smaller. There were multiple. The one they were concerned about was the size of an orange and it was getting worse. And they said, you know, you're just gonna have to have a C-section. So we planned that. Then it was a month prior to when he was due and just the amount of space for him to grow was limited because we found out once I had my C-section, I had one that was the size of an orange and then five golf ball sized ones in there. So he just ran out of space and my water broke. I was in there probably another hour and a half so that they could actually remove the fibroids themselves. And thank God I had my OBGYN that knew my history. I was in there about two plus hours and they got them all out. I was growing a second child more or less. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Laura Borgelt. She is a professor at the University of Colorado Anschutz campus, and she is an expert in hormone health. Now, we've talked a lot about hormones in the later part of life, but as we just heard from Jane, boy, hormones can affect us in many different unexpected ways when we're young as well. She talked about her challenges with those fibroids. Let's start there because... The size of Jane's fibroids were like, wow, an orange. Can you explain what are fibroids and why they were a problem for Jane and for many other women? So fibroids or cysts and different formations can occur in these spaces. Often women with endometriosis can also have some difficulty with pregnancy and the formation of abnormalities. And so these can happen because of hormone fluctuations in the body. Some of it can be genetic. And so sometimes these can create challenges for women to become pregnant. And many people think about pregnancy as, oh, it can just happen on a dime. I think Quite honestly, pregnancy is a miracle. It is. The timing has to be perfect. The hormones have to be perfect. The sperm and egg meeting. I mean, it's fascinating to me, and I think it's amazing that we have so many humans running around this planet with everything that has to go so well. That's exactly right. So that means that there are a lot of people trying a lot. Yes. (laughs) But that is a good thing. I suffered from fibroids, and you think very heavy periods towards the end of that time for myself. And understanding... What that 
looks like. Because the doctor was like, you said, Gloria, at this point, do you want kids? We've talked about that, honey. That ship has left the dock. It is over. So if we are going to move forward, let's talk about what those options look like, whether that's removing your uterus or in leaving the ovaries, which is what I did, because it went from just normal to like I could be sitting up at a meeting and you'd feel this gush. And I have no protection on. And so immediately my focus is gone. Mm -hmm. It is gone because I am very concerned about what's going to happen when I stand up. And all of those things, why do cysts do that? How do they form, I should say? Some cysts are very arbitrary and don't cause any problem whatsoever. Others are more hormone sensitive, and so that can create a problem. There's a very common syndrome called polycystic ovary syndrome, yep. which can also lead to changes in not only menstruation, where women don't menstruate, but also may have trouble getting pregnant. And so these are common things that can occur for women in their 20s and 30s and may or may not even be discovered until they're trying to get pregnant. That's right. And then they find out, oh, okay, I've got an anatomic abnormality or maybe a hormonal abnormality that may prevent me from getting pregnant in the way that I anticipated. And are the reasons why it's difficult to get pregnant is because the cysts are taking up the space where the baby would be? Not necessarily. In this person's case, that seemed to create a problem once the conception had occurred and the baby was growing. But sometimes hormones and these changes that are occurring or abnormalities that are occurring may prevent conception from being able to occur. And it really depends on each woman's situation. But I think the beauty of living today uh-huh. that we have a lot of ways that we can test diagnose, evaluate, and look at what might be happening for women and how we can best help them if they want to become pregnant. Let's move on and talk about women and getting pregnant specifically. You think about women who need fertility treatments or women who miscarry. They also experience extreme hormone imbalances. Can you share and talk about that a little bit? Sure. When we talk about infertility, it depends on the woman's age. But typically, if a woman's been trying to conceive for a year, they're a little bit older, maybe even just six months, and they're not able to become pregnant, then it's worthy of an evaluation from a provider. And the reasons for that can be plentiful. There are ways that we can help with the treatments, like you said. Sometimes it may be just taking a tablet and helping the body understand better what it needs to do. Other times, we may need to go to in vitro fertilization. One of the blessings is that we have options and choices for women to determine what's best for them. And typically, gradual process is taken so we can have uh, time and opportunity to conceive as people choose and want to. Those times when you talk about women who are trying to conceive and they get very frustrated, how do you counsel women and patients, really, the entire family, the husband, wife, or partners. And I think that's one of the things to be paying attention to because that stress can actually increase hormones in our body the way that we may not want. Right. So, for example, our stress hormone is cortisol. And, you know, cortisol is great for us when we are getting chased by a dog. Right. Right? (laughs) Adrenaline is great when we get chased by a dog. Yeah. 
But when women are under stress more chronically, that can lead to additional problems. <laughs> you end up in this crazy cycle <laughs> yeah. because it's all you can really think about. But at the same time, we really want women to understand that this is a process. We're going to take time. We're going to make sure that you take care of yourself so you can keep those hormone levels like cortisol down. Because in the end, if that's chronically going on, that can lead to other conditions that affect our heart, our thyroid, other organs of our body. So we really want to try to help them understand and empathize. This is a really difficult time. It is. It is. Let's see what we can do to help you feel good, to keep your stress low, to help your body really respond as best as it can with the treatments that we're going to pursue. If there was one thing that has been the constant throughout these every podcast, you talk about every woman, you talk about stress. Every single topic has included the warnings about women and stress. Stress is so pervasive. It is so damaging. And I said this earlier in, in the previous podcast where we were talking specifically about stress. I said, for something that you can't see, kind of like turbulence, it is so doggone destructive. Is a great analogy. I love that analogy. <laughs> you can use it. Call it a glowism. A glowism. I've got it. I'm using it. Stress really just changes your life for the better or the worse. Either learn how to deal with it or you pay the price. Your mm -hmm. body can't take that fight or flight 24-7. That's right. Stress can be sneaky because it just can be a little bit at a time over time. And we think, oh, we can handle it. We can manage it. It's just for a time. It's just for a phase. Well, one phase leads to the next phase. <laughs> right. And then we end up with some chronic health conditions that can be problematic. Like you said, invisible at times. Oh, man, it is something. What about the hormone changes that happen after pregnancy? Because... The fun for women just does not stop with the hormone roller coaster ride that we go on. <laughs> what happens after pregnancy? So are we going up or down? I mean, that's really the question, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so I think with the roller coaster that we have after pregnancy, there's a hormone. Progesterone is the key hormone for maintaining the pregnancy. Of course, once the baby is born, then that level of progesterone drops. Okay. And that can often, and in most women, up to 80% of women actually, can cause the baby blues. Right. And baby blues is just you're feeling down, you're kind of out of sorts, and that can last one or two weeks after a baby's born. Now, there's a portion of those women that also can lead to postpartum depression. This is an unrecognized condition, and for a lot of reasons, primarily because I think women have guilt or shame in talking about it. And they were told, oh, it's going to be the best time of your life. It's going to be so joyous. And yet, at the end of the day, <laughs> your body's a wreck. Exactly. <laughs> You're tired. Right. <laughs> you have a crying baby. <laughs> yeah. And it just becomes much more difficult. But I think if we can be honest and sincere about what we're going through, where we're at, we have a lot of support and treatments available to help women through this time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's underutilized, and I think it's unrecognized because women feel maybe not so safe to talk about it all the time because they're not sure what that's going to mean. That's exactly right. I'm glad we're talking about it because we do want to encourage women to talk about this. Is yes. your body trying to go back to and, and find its new normal? Right. I mean, it takes time. We've had all of this hormone surge to really be able to hold another human life. 
And then once that baby is born and is going out into the world, our body has to have time to respond and react to that. And I think that often that grace isn't always given to ourselves. And so for the weeks, and I would even say months that follow, it can take time for our body to respond. And if you mentioned cesarean section that was mentioned in the podcast, Mm -hmm. in this situation might be a vaginal delivery. Those two very different experiences can lead to different effects in postpartum experiences. That is an interesting point. All of this is really hard to go through because on top of all this other stuff, you are sleep deprived. You're probably overwhelmed with taking care of a newborn and whatever else might be going on with kids, family, job. How do you know if it's postpartum and not all these other things, Laura? I think that's a great question. I mentioned that the baby blues can last up to two weeks afterwards. I think if women are finding that beyond those two weeks, they are not enjoying things in life. They are triggered more easily or maybe even having thoughts that are discouraging and hopeless. And so beyond that time frame and the severity of those symptoms, there are screenings or questionnaires online at your doctor's office that can help to find the right support during that time. And it's just for a time. I say that just because you're feeling down and sad right now doesn't mean you will be a year or two from now. That's right. (laughs) But to honor and to recognize that this phase can be really tough. We have measures that can help. And it's okay to acknowledge, yeah, the hormones have shifted. Things have changed. You have more on your plate. You have multiple things you're concerned about. I call it the intersectionality of life because all these different things are coming into play. And so how do we then bring that together so we can take care of ourselves, so we can be a better parent, so we can take care of that child, take care of the other children, go back to our job, all of those things that we want to do. Oh, my goodness. I tell you, it really does speak to... Even more so, self-care, grace, be kind to yourself. You just produced a human. Right. (laughs) Miracle. (laughs) Right. It is a miracle. Is therapy a part of this as well? Because a lot of times if we feel apprehensive to share and talk, even to a girlfriend, even to our moms. Absolutely. I think that's always a great way to go if you're feeling that it's becoming more difficult to manage. We have a lot of therapists that are available and ready to help us through these challenging times. And for women who maybe are in that phase of, I don't really want to be on a medication while I'm breastfeeding, for example. I'm not sure if that's the right path for me right now. I think going to a therapist is a great idea to get that support, to get really good behavior Mm -hmm. (laughs) therapy, Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, all the things that we need to get things back on track. It can be really helpful. Yeah, it can be very, very helpful, especially when the therapist says, this is normal, you are normal, you will get through this. And it was a good idea to reach out and get help in this way. How do you know what is hormonal and what is depression? Because the symptoms can be similar when they are both kind of out of whack. A lot of it comes down to timing. I think we have pretty natural rhythms to our bodies, quite honestly. I mean, we even think about menstrual cycles and the flow of that can be different for each woman. So we have these rhythms and flows. After having a baby, there's kind of this time frame where, yes, the hormone levels drop. And we kind of establish a new norm, which then becomes a newer norm a little bit later on. So there's kind of these phases and rhythms that we recognize as patterns 
And when things fall outside that pattern, that's where the difference comes in. Mm. So it's not just a hormonal fluctuation anymore. It really could be something that is related to not just hormones, but maybe the neurotransmitters or the way that the perception in the world is at this time for you. I wanted to ask you about how things like increased stress, a big move, job changes, all of that, an injury, how that impacts our hormones. And explain how these things affect that balance. And once again, what can we do to help and get us through it? Yes. And women in particular often carry many of the (laughs) diverse (laughs) aspects of our lives. And I think as we look at the lifespan We started off by talking about perimenopause and menopause. That's often a time when women are taking care of an older parent, also having kids going off to college, trying to manage all these hormonal changes. To your point, the stress that can build in times like that, and you add on a job change or a move, like you mentioned, and it increases that even more so. I really think that this increased stress is something that we should be paying attention to. We want to manage, and it can be in brief moments. And that's what I love about what we're learning with the science. It doesn't mean I have to go meditate for an hour in my yoga room, right? <laughs> which right. I don't have. But it can give myself a minute at a time. That's right. And that can really help. Six deep breaths can be a game changer to help reset and to come back into our inner beautiful self and bring us to a place of stepping back out into the world again. All of it comes together. Black and white women, though, when you start talking hormones and you start talking changes, is there a difference? There can be a definite difference. And where we know some of this information now is actually in that perimenopause and menopausal phases. And I'll maybe just broaden it a little bit to say with African-American women, they tend to experience menopause earlier, a couple years earlier. Mm-hmm. And they tend to have an increased risk of hot flashes compared to white women, almost double, actually. Or Chinese or Japanese women, they tend to have fewer hot flash symptoms. They think that might be related to diet and even estrogen across the lifespan. And then when we talk about Latina women, they actually, at least in the science that we've seen so far, can have increases in mood changes and the depression, anxiety aspects. So we see different parts of the hormone experience in that time being different among racial and ethnic differences. And I find it fascinating, but also an opportunity for us to recognize that as a provider, I need to be able to understand that these women could come in at different times with different experiences. One statistic I found interesting was that white women are two times more likely to be treated with hormone therapy, but they're also two times more likely to be asked about menopause. Mm. compared to African-American women. And to me, it recognizes an inherent bias that we may have. And I think that's something we really need to address is to say, and there's actually a bias for obese women that they may not have as much menopausal symptoms. Well, why are we assuming that? Exactly. And I think it's really an awareness of, I am who I am as I come into this space and as a provider, but also as a patient, we both need to come together to say, how can we best take care of you no matter where you're at? That's exactly right. And for those women who feel as though either their doctor is not asking them those questions or hasn't asked the right questions or is not as vested in their health, what do they need to do? Get their girl power on. Hello, (laughs) exclamation point, drop the mic. (laughs) Exactly. And it's about asserting yourself or having an advocate with you 
whoever that may be. It could be another girlfriend. It could be a mother. It could be a husband. Right. Whoever that needs to be. It's really finding a way to be able to assert, right. here's what's happening to me. And I've always said, you want to know what's wrong with a patient? Ask them. Because they will it tell is, you that's right. what is wrong with them. It's that simple. <laughs> exactly. And so when I, as a patient, come to you, I need to be able to come with a picture of what's happening to me, even though I don't necessarily know what it's called or the diagnosis for it. So if we can assert ourselves as women into that space and saying, here's me, here's what's happening with me, here's how I need you to help. And hopefully as a good provider, they'd be able to respond to that. There you go. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going. I know this body. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. You are so very welcome. So very welcome. We are amazing as women. We are really in many ways, I say, so goes the woman, so goes the household. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> But you have amazing knowledge, too. Thank you so much, Glow. It's been a pleasure. To sum up Dr. Borgelt's top five takeaways for hormone health, they are, number one, there is a lot of help available for women experiencing symptoms due to hormonal changes. You don't have to go through this alone, ladies. Number two, in addition to hormone treatment, natural remedies and changes in your diet, they can also help to treat some of these symptoms. Number three, prioritize that sleep when dealing with hormone changes since lack of sleep can make your symptoms worse. If you heard nothing else today, please get some rest so your brain can do the refiling because, you know, we put it in the wrong place. Number four, do not be afraid to seek help for depression and anxiety that can sometimes accompany hormonal changes. Number five, the last one, remember this, it does not last forever. Try to have reasonable expectations and be realistic about what you are going through and adjust your life accordingly. To follow up on today's episode, you can check out our show notes at uchealth.org forward slash every. That's E-V-R-E. I must say that again. E-V-R-E. I have so many texts now saying, Glow, is it every like the word every or is it ever? No, it's E-V-R-E. But it does mean every woman. To find out more about today's expert, you can visit uchealth.org. I want to thank you for joining us. As usual, it has been a pleasure. And please do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. They're on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio Podcast. To find out more about our subject today, you can visit us at uchealth.org forward slash every. E-V-R-E. That's how you spell it. Every is produced by UC Health. Thanks for joining us.